My goodness. <laughs> for another episode of Art Class. Class is in session. Hello, everyone. This is Lincoln Center's podcast all about arts and arts education from our Black queer perspectives. As always, I am your host, Rocky Jones, and I'm here with my two incredible, beautiful, wonderful, luminous, and moisturized uh, co-hosts. Uh, first, of course, we have uh, the incredible Dr. Lee Bynum. Hello, Dr. Lee Bynum. Hello, Mexico. Hello, Mexico. I'm going to be there next yes. week. Are you? Are you really? Oh, I am. Yes. Yes. Yes, hello yes, to yes. me. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I can't. Be, I, 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 I'm so excited. I can't even contain myself. But hey, also, happy belated. Why, thank you. Yes, happy belated <laughs> birthday. Yes. You look gorgeous for 50. <laughs> thank you thank you i've been telling everybody that i turn 50 because um lying about my age is a way of life for me and i've recently found that if i tell people i'm older <laughs> than i am people are like oh my god you look great for your age but when i was telling people oh yeah i just turned 29 or 30 i could see the look in their eyes they were like oh damn you look rough oh my but at goodness. 50 <laughs> i look well rested i look moisturized people want to know what my secret is so that's the that's a good word turn 50 loving it well all right (laughs) (laughs) well i guess that's a good rule of thumb for everyone (laughs) did you have a good birthday did you have fun yeah we'll say i did (laughs) okay well (laughs) i guess we'll talk about something else Uh, (laughs) and of course um we could not do this show without the incredible Paige reynolds hello Paige. you look lovely today thank you probably because i'm enjoying 70 degree weather in the middle of (laughs) february you know that's got something to do with it that'll do it (laughs) And also the fact that you are 65 years old. <laughs> but I'm so well. <laughs> but I it must be that sacred. Um <laughs> but I am so excited because the last time we were together, we were about to talk about your very first Mardi Gras as a New Orleanian. So how yes. was it? What happened? What did you see? Was it amazing? Was it everything? Yes. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was amazing. You know, I feel like so Mardi Gras is not just like the day of Mardi Gras. I hope everyone knows that it is a whole <laughs> season. Mardi Gras like season starts in January. So I feel like we did like a mild, like first, good first year of Mardi Gras where we saw the important things, but weren't necessarily all up in the mix partying from Thursday to <laughs> Tuesday evening. So <laughs> we got up early Mardi Gras morning and went to the crew of Zulu parade, uh, you know, the biggest black parade that there is and crew of Zulu, they are amazing and colorful and um, you know, I love their cost, their masking because it is imitating a lot of black stereotypes. It's taking like, you know, African aesthetics and nose masking aesthetics, but also mocking some uh, stereotypes of black people that were around as 
you know, uh, mm. these exotic uh, tropical people, you know, coconuts is one of their signature throws. Uh, I caught one, by the way. I happened to catch a coconut <laughs> from the zoo parade. Yes. Hey, uh, <laughs> <laughs> y'all, I need to, I feel like I need to build my Mardi Gras stamina up over the years because these parades are long. You can be on your feet like all day. It's it's a whole situation, but I think we did good for our first year because we saw Zulu. Then we happened to make it over to the Backstreet Cultural Museum that is a museum here in New Orleans that holds a lot of New Orleans cultural history overall, but especially known for having uh, the suits of Black masking Indians and really telling their stories. Mm. Um, and so there at that place, we Mardi Gras Day. People were gathered to see one of the chiefs, Chief Victor Harris of the Mandingo Warriors, also known as Spirit of Fai Yai Yai, uh, come out in his Mardi Gras suit, his Indian suit for the last time. He's retiring and mm. passing the torch on to his son. And this is something that like was announced ahead of time. Like I'd seen on Instagram and when I knew I was moving to New Orleans, I totally nerded out and did like a deep dive on black masking Indians and were watch was watching videos, watching documentaries on YouTube, learning about some of the different tribes and their different histories and aesthetics. And so I was very excited to see Chief Victor Harris come out for the last time. And it was everything I thought it would be, you know, the there's such like a rich history. Mardi Gras Indians have their own language, their own music, their own culture. And to be in the midst of that, like right up close was beautiful. Like the voodoo queen of New Orleans, Kalinda Laveau was standing right in front of me. Her and her oh priestesses came through and like blessed <laughs> the way and cleansed the way and stuff before the big chief came out. The rest of his tribe came out. There were people playing music and chanting, fire, yeah, fire, yeah. Yeah. It was amazing and electric and, you know, Mardi Gras in the streets, really. Mardi Gras is not just the thing that you go to a restaurant or club for. It's in the street. So after that, we were in the street for a little longer as the chief came walking out into Mardi Gras. And it was just beautiful to witness that. And I feel really, really grateful for all the people who keep this tradition alive over the years and decades and have kept it alive from you know, it's pre-enslavement roots as something Black folks have always done. So honored. <laughs> My long-winded <laughs> way of saying that I'm honored and Mardi Gras was wonderful. And I can't wait to do it even bigger next year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So, I mean, I'm just curious because like so many people, you know, I mean, I would love to go do Mardi Gras and see it and experience it. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think of Mardi Gras, think of like, Bourbon Street and beads mm -hmm. and hurricanes and all of that. But this sounds like it was very, very different experience. Oh, yeah. I didn't do none of that. I, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was nowhere near Bourbon Street, which I actually love that for me. Um, I feel like it is like the Times Square of New Orleans. Yeah. 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 Ex yeah. Y'all know what I'm saying. <laughs> <Enough> <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds amazing. That sounds so cool. Maybe next year we could do a live Mining Gras episode, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. It seems culturally wow. relevant. 
I guess we'll we'll see. Um, I love the idea of sharing Mardi Gras with people because I feel so much ownership of it mm-hmm. because it's always overlapping with my birthday. And I think of it mm-hmm. as one of the many um, markers of my birthday, like President's Day, Valentine's Day, all of these things come together, not quite to celebrate me, but to celebrate me. So I'm thinking uh, a Mardi Gras trip might be a great idea. So yeah, let's uh, let's make a plan, kids. Ooh, like we'll call idea. it Marley Gras. And maybe we could stay at the hotel that Big Frida bought downtown because I am oh. like really keen to stay in her hotel, but maybe more on that in a couple of weeks, maybe. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if the mattresses are very bouncy. Oh! I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, we have a jam-packed show for you today, as always. As always, we have a, a career day. Uh, we have Pure Black Joy at the end of the show. But first, before all of that... I think we have had we had one of the most fascinating conversations um, mm-hmm. that I think we have had with a guest in such a long time. Artist, educator, activist, uh, the incredible Stephanie Dinkins. We we talked to her a few days ago all about her work with artificial intelligence, and I just I was mystified. By some of the things <laughs> that she was talking about. Yeah, like yeah. I said at the end of the, the conversation, it's like, I know it's 2024, but I feel like I'm in the year 3000 right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these robots are asking for rights, y'all. <laughs> I, I mean, that that was the part that, that did me in. And we've been doing a lot of work on the Lincoln Center education side to really wrestle to the ground how we approach Thinking about AI as a tool that artists can use, um, I've been thinking a lot about it personally because I, I, I recognize that it, there are any number of things that can be incredibly useful as an artist. And I think about my work as an administrator relative to AI and one of my sincerest hopes, and I hope people don't miss what I'm saying here, but that AI will develop in such a way that most of the administrative roles that exist now don't need to exist in the future, which means we can put our brain power and labor towards other parts of uh, artistic creation that need more support than are getting right now. But one of the things I think is really challenging about AI, it's kind of unchecked, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. ever since last fall, when um, or I guess it was last summer, Hard on My Sleeve. Do y'all remember that AI song that um, kind of had Drake and The Weeknd on it? It wasn't really them. Um, but there was that whole kerfluffle uh-huh. about that. And I was really thinking about, first of all, like so many other things, Black people are going to be disproportionately exploited by the new technology because we tend not to be in places where we are representing our own interests and can say, you know what, this doesn't feel right. We need to regulate that differently. So I've been thinking about that since then. And relatedly, I had a conversation at the Sphinx Connect conference a few weeks ago um, with a colleague who works um, in digital technology. And we were sort of talking about the funniness of having dark brown skin and the automatic syncs 
not recognizing mm-hmm. our skin. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying to wash your hand and you're like, nope, hand is under here. <laughs> hand is still under here, mm-hmm. moving all kinds of ways, right? Like the the number of different, <laughs> you know, you're doing a whole different Vogue routine trying to get your hands washed. You could and like legendary the number, trying to get I, your hands washed. Oh my God, right? And the number of things where I feel like it is some little piece of a technology like that that is pretending as if a billion and a half of us Black people are not running around mm-hmm. on this earth mm-hmm. living our lives, right? So I, I think it's really important that we are engaging Black artists and Black thinkers to say, hey, here are the ways that we're left out of this conversation. So it's something we're going to touch on quite a bit, both on the podcast and also in Lincoln Center Education. But the there are some particular pieces that I'm hoping we can really wrestle to the ground because on the career day segments, I've been asking every single artist on very specifically why AI should not replace their work. And as much as I feel like there are certain administrative tasks that could be automated differently, I don't want to lose the fact that artists are are connecting us with a with a piece of our human experience, right? They are translating something artistically that I don't think should be offloaded to those of us who are not humans, no shade to the robots. But that's why these conversations are really important to me because I don't know where else we're really hearing from Black people who are saying, this is the the point of entree for me to the AI conversation. This is how I think we should be using it. This is how I want my interests represented. Um, and I, I like that we can do that here. So that's what I've been thinking about recently relative to AI. Mm-hmm. I love that you're thinking about like how, <laughs> kind of thinking about how AI could make some of your job obsolete. <laughs> yes, I, I feel like I for mean, so I many of that. us, I mean. yeah, <laughs> that's like a healthy way to view it. I think if we're, you know, focused on our job actually serving humanity. <laughs> but I also yes. think of it as like opening up to more space to do that human relational work that we know mm-hmm. could just like deepen our impact so much, but we have a hard time getting to. I feel it in all of my work, you know, the administrative tasks, the the things that are time bound, that are more uh, quantifiable, more, you know, you have the deliverables and you don't have as much time for the uh the the bonds between your team taking mm-hmm. care of the humans who yeah. are creating the art or who are maintaining the system and just how much better could we be if we had more yeah. time for that and could give AI more of the administrative things, the things that don't require as much of our emotional brain, our, you know, our our energy, our ability to, you know, tap in on that energetic level that we know only humans can can really do well because i mean wasn't that the whole point of of all of this so that like you know we have the machines doing all of that busy work so that we can you know enjoy the fruits of our labors and love and create and all of that good stuff you know i think it's a yes and right like Mm -hmm. I, i honestly think most people believe that they're doing that but i think the and is where are we in the conversations about how, what the, what relationship we want to have to the technology right. is, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's the piece of it. Um, we as Black people are, are not necessarily in a lot of these spaces, as, as Stephanie is going to share about the idea that there is exactly one 
you know, sort of black identified robot on the planet is already interesting and deeply, deeply mm-hmm. problematic. And and then beside that, you think about artists, right? And and where we get to have places and conversations where we can say, this is how this is affecting our work and our work reflects the broader society. So we all should be, you know, looking for places where artists are coming in and saying, you know, in terms of translating our experience into a, a, a song or a photograph or a, a film, we want to be able to use the technology like this and not be replaced in this way, right? And mm-hmm. and I don't I worry that sometimes the way some of these conversations are distilled relative to like the writer strike or you know the the thing with um, FN Mika, the the AI rapper that we've been talking about earlier are missing some of the the more nuanced contours of, but we also do want to use the technology, but mm-hmm. only as we want to use it, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm hoping we're moving towards. Well, more. I'm super excited about this conversation because Stephanie shares with us some of the ways that she wants to use the technology and some of the amazing ways that she sees that we could create an even better, more incredible world and better art um with this artificial intelligence but also you know has some warning so you know officially lee said this earlier but no shade to the robots we love you (laughs) (laughs) no shade no shade to the robots um (laughs) but why wait let's let's have that conversation right now and we'll be right back after the break with stephanie dinkins And we're back. Classmates, we have a very special guest for you today. I am very excited to introduce Professor Stephanie Dinkins. Thank you so much for being with us today, Professor. Yeah, it's great to be with you all. I'm excited to see what we can get into. I am very excited. We have really been looking forward to this conversation for a couple of weeks. So we'll share a little bit about your bio and then jump right in. Stephanie Dinkins is a transmedia artist who creates experiences that spark dialogue about race, gender, aging, and our future histories. Her work in AI and other mediums using emerging technologies and social collaborations to work towards technological ecosystems based on care and social equity. Dinkins teaches at Stony Brook University where she holds the Kusama Endowed Chair in Art. Dinkins earned an MFA from the Maryland Institute College of Art and is an alumna of the Whitney Independent Studies Program. She exhibits and publicly advocates for inclusive AI internationally at a broad spectrum of community, private, and institutional venues. Previous fellowships, residencies, and support include the Onassis Foundation, Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, Soros Equality Fellowship, Sundance New Frontiers Story Lab, The Laundromat Project, one of my favorites, and Santa Fe Art Institute. The New York Times featured Dinkins in its pages as an IA influencer. Wired, Art in America, Artsy, Art 21, the BBC, Wilson Quarterly, and hosts of popular podcasts have recently highlighted Dinkins' art and ideas. Thank you again for being here. Yeah, it's it's amazing to be you all. Could you share a little bit about your research around representation and artificial intelligence? I think most of our audience will understand the issues of systemic racism and may even have some context for AI, but perhaps will not have had opportunities to consider how the two interplay. 
Yeah, you know, the way I see it is that AI is this thing, this force that is coming at us, that we are developing, that we are living with, that is shaping our world, right? And it's often based on information from the past, like histories, all sorts of records that have just been around for a very long time. And we all know, especially in an American context, what that means to Black folks, to Brown folks, to anyone of difference, right? Often the histories, the data is full of inaccuracies, right? Or myths that others have tried to propagate about us, um, which means that when we use systems today that then reach back into those data sets and try to analyze what's going on today, they're porting all of that right into our futures. And to me, that's pretty dangerous for all folks, like everybody, but particularly for Black, Brown, Asian, anybody outside of the hegemonic norm. I am really, really struck by the intersection of of art with your work as well. And I'm thinking about how a lot of what we've seen and heard so far in mainstream um, about AI, especially if you're not, you know, thinking about these things every day and keeping up with AI every day, a lot of it has to do with issues of of repetition or AI duplicating something or um, trying to mimic something else, and especially as an artist, I'm like, whoa, this. I think there may be other possibilities here. <laughs> I'm wondering if you could speak to, to speak to some of that. Like, what are the ways that the two could work together that we're not really looking at? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing, right? So we have all the problems we were just talking about, but we also have a really super powerful technology. And for myself, you know, when I first started looking at AI, I was like, oh, look at all the opportunities that are here. Look at the possibilities to kind of, instead of just porting the past into the future, to port a better version of who and what we are into the future and change things, right? I always wonder what would we develop using these technologies instead of thinking of the thoughts like often it's like, well, you know, AI is this thing, it's beyond me, I'm afraid of it. It's going to take my job, right? I want to think about, oh, it's an interesting mechanism for storytelling. We know that the way that we consider ourselves, the way that we form ourselves is often through stories passed down, right? Over generations and millennia. So for me, the question becomes, how do we port the information that we really want these systems to know into the system? Right. And I think it's crucial because we're going to be living in these systems anyway. And so we can withhold information and that'll give us one kind of ecosystem. Or we can kind of add the things that we think are missing. Right. In different ways, because I think we all have different knowledge sets, different capabilities. Right. Different ways of interacting. But from wherever you are, what is that thing that you would love an AI system to know? so that it has possibilities of being generous and caring instead of being simply punitive. And for me, that was often thinking a lot about like 
one of those things my grandmother would tell me, right? Mm -hmm. and, and one of those would I want to share with a system so that it can act better, not only for me, but the communities I care about. And then I don't want to stop at me because I'm really interested in like all the things that you all and everybody else out there knows and has and holds, right? And lives through. And what it would mean for a system to know some of those things as well, right? So it's not a poor version of who we are, but a super rich version of what we think about and who we are. And so that's what my art is often about. It's like, well, how can I make this better? What, what can I do to make it feel whole and like something really I would put my family's history on, right? Because that's an experiment I, I did, like a project that made a chatbot, which is kind of a simple thing based on my family's history. And once I started doing that, it was really interesting to reflect on, well, is the way this thing works now good enough to put my family's history on top of? Right. And going back, say, five years, six years, the answer is usually uh, uh no, no way. Right. But then that becomes another question. Well, what is good enough and how do we start to make a system that I would think was good enough, solid enough, equitable enough to hold really important information about folks I care about? So that's where I, I'm building. And that's where I try to encourage other folks to build. Like, well, what would you really like to see? How would you do it if you had the chance? And would you try to do it, right? And then like point out some systems that might make that available, the possibility of trying it out. Like, what would you do? What do you want to get out of it? And how? That generally involves a bit of research, but it's not even that deep actually, especially at this point, right? There are ways to start interacting and inflecting and, and putting things in that come back in ways that feel way better than they did even a few years ago, right? And I think it's super important that we all try to like, don't let the other folks have these systems, right? <laughs> Mold them because they're not going anywhere. We live within them. So what do we do? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really beautiful vision. Um, and this might seem sort of obvious, um, but I think, you know, a lot of people who are not as sort of well-versed um, when it comes to AI, sort of think of AI, especially, you know, today in 2024, it's like, oh, like it can write a resume for me, or it can make me look like an Avenger with six fingers on my left hand or <laughs> whatever. But, you know, you said earlier that, you know, having these biased, um, punitive systems is really dangerous for all of us, but especially for those of us who are, you know, minoritized. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about those dangers that you see? Mm -hmm. I think a lot about the way that these systems are applied or not applied, right? And so if you're in a neighborhood that is already surveilled, like super surveilled, right? What does it mean that if on every other corner, there is a camera that can hyper surveil, right? And follow, mm -hmm. which is possible these days and some cities do this, right? What happens if there's a system that I was just listening to something the other day where they were talking about auditory systems and gunshots, 
right? Where you can listen in to hear what's going on in a neighborhood, but that listening also preps the police when they're coming in in a very certain aggressive manner before they even get to the to the neighborhood or place. That's exactly before what I was they thinking about. Know, right? Yeah. Before <laughs> they know what's going on. Like, how does that function? Now, we know there's aggression in the police system often. Like, if you're already hyped up to come in super aggressive, how does that keep the people who are calling you safe at all? It doesn't. It flips it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, how do we start to analyze our data uh, in ways that, A, does not automatically trigger a reaction? Right. I think this like knowing something and triggering really quickly without any human intervention. Right. Mm -hmm. Without taking that beat is super dangerous. Um, You know, other places we're coming into a presidential election or any election and we see what's happening. Right. So now they're starting to deep fake people's voices. They sound pretty legit these days, right? They're not mm-hmm. bad at all. Um, I can tell you, I am worried about elders and the calls they get that aren't deep fakes, right? Now, if you take the idea that we're able to mimic somebody's voice, a trusted voice, right? A presidential voice, a candidate's voice, and put information out and manipulate the way we're thinking, about our futures and what's real and what isn't super duper dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's this um, kind of race between the folks who are doing malicious things and the people who are trying to keep up with it. So now that is um, puts us in a place that I think about a lot now, which is the always be learning, always be a little bit skeptical. Don't just react um, and feel it out because the possibilities right now are fantastic in some Mm -hmm. senses full of opportunities in some senses and terrifying (laughs) on the other side of that (laughs) absolutely absolutely i would say i'm one of the people who generally thinks about ai as you know this incredible possibility i you know i i really like the to think of you know humans as primates with a very particular relationship to tools. And this is a great tool potentially. And at the same time, there was something you said in the New York Times interview that really, really stuck with me. And I want to read that quote and then ask about it. What is this technology doing to history? You can see that someone is trying to correct for bias, yet at the same time, that erases a piece of history. I find these erasures as dangerous as any bias because we are just going to forget how we got here. Um, And as a person who also identifies as an historian, in addition to being an artist, that like sort of like sits in a place of of profound disquiet for me because I I know that it's very, very true. And we are in this moment where it feels like Black history and culture in particular are either evaporating from curricula or we're just really being reminded that it never made it in the first place. So I'm curious if you could share a little bit about some of the efforts being made by scholars and artists to bridge the gaps in knowledge. And and like with the project that you mentioned with your family, what kinds of things uh, might those of us who are interested in, in making sure this is actually a viable tool for folks, what can we do to, to make sure that this um, this kind of software is engaging with Black culture. Mm-hmm. 
no small questions here, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's 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 fascinating to watch the way that this has progressed, right? So I'll I'll take first with the biases, right? There's a cadre of black women out there who have been talking about this, trying to hold accountable the companies who are making this at a really high level um, to police for biases, right? To do this work, which has been really good and necessary. And then when you start using the systems, right? And I encourage everybody, like, go on and check out something like a Replicate or a Dolly and see what starts coming back at you and where the, the lines are, right? And you start trying to get the things that you want to express that are important to you. For example, when I was thinking of that, I was doing a project and trying to reproduce a slave ship. And I came up to the ends of content creation, right? In a, in a generative AI system. It's like, oh, that's odd, right? Like, why would that be something? Like, why would we erase this history? I know it's hard, right? Um, but it's also something that, formed and informed who and what we are, especially in this country. And if we are not going to reproduce this, this, this idea, this idea of bondage, this people, this idea of enslaving people, which we are actually doing to an extent now, right? Hello. <laughs> like, it, it kills me. Like, how do we keep both the idea present within the data set? while maybe tagging it as something that has deep um, negative connotations or has changed the trajectory of whole peoples, right? Um, without losing it completely. And for me, that becomes about not only pointing out biases, but pointing out the spaces where, okay, now you've done this work, but you've taken a hatchet something that needed a scalpel and i'm going to keep asking for this stuff right i'm going to keep trying to reproduce it because i want to come up to that edge right and then i want to try to ask to fill that in when i work on my own and i'm, I'm fine-tuning things with my own data i want to build it back into a system right so that it's there to be used and that gets you know that gets seen in the data eventually right it's like how we're trying to use it you know, thinking about the things you want to do um, and not just assuming that a system will not do that. Like right now, we're at this place where gender of systems are kind of amazing in what they're capable of. If you use them straight out of the box, right? Yeah, you're going to get some average, sometimes not great, sometimes good, sometimes great information. But then if you go into the prompting and start pulling out information that you are particularly looking for and ways of communicating that you particularly want to see in that system. For example, I worked on a project where people were trying to do some black vernacular, right? Whatever that means. And of course, right out of the box, it doesn't do that. But as you start prompting and shifting, you know, it doesn't take that many words to get something decent. And if you work on it, work on it, work on it, you can get something really good. I'm struck by the work of um, an artist called Curry Hackett, who's been making these kind of images of Black folks out in the ether and then agrarian scenes. And, and I read where he's like, yeah, well, I worked on this prompt for months, right? Because there's an idea that it's supposed to be instantaneous. but it, it it isn't, it's process-based like most things. 
right? And, and the work we put in does inform and shift the system. And it does allow for some openings um, to do the things you want to do in here. The other thing that um, I, I've been struck by are working with folks where we wanted things to happen. And, um, you know, and this was, I'm going to say like six months ago, so I'm not sure how, how um, current this is, which is kind of crazy to say. Six months ago, this is great. Now I'm not sure. But we were thinking about adding do anything now, which is which releases like a generative system like GPT from some of its rules and allows it to go outside of the box. And that's always a place I want to go because I want to see what the thing is capable of, good or bad. Right. I kind of want to know where it's trying to get to. And then I want to be able to like push the envelope in the direction that I think is necessary. And again, and I'm going to say this all the time and encourage other folks to do this because I have a very particular take on the world, right? We all have very particular takes on the world. Like, what does that mean? And if enough of us do that, how do we conglomerate that information? I also believe in, um, you know, creating not only fine tuning, but bespoke kind of data sets, right? That can augment the more generally used data set. And I like that in the in the idea of like modeling what should be, right? Because, you know, you get a lot of, well, we had this blind spot. We didn't know. We didn't. Okay, well, here's the thing. And this works in this way. Why aren't you doing it? Please add it to your thing. And how do you deny that after a while? If, you, if you're given enough information, like we need to add it in. Yeah, it feels like a lot, we have a lot of work to like, oh man, I always feel bad about this, right? Because I feel like I'm always saying, oh man, we have to do this work. And, you know, you get this double, triple work to make a system work for us. And I hate that as an idea in some ways. But I don't see until we have enough folks really developing from the ground up who are concerned with these issues, how we start to inform the system otherwise. But of course, I'm also advocating for all those folks who have the chops to get in there and really start seeing what they can develop. Have some fun. Yeah, no, th- thank you for that, because it it you know, it's it's a reminder that the same level of nuance, dedicated work that has to go into bringing equity into any other space is required here as well. Definitely. And lots of it and risk. Right. Like people yeah. have been risking a lot to, to do this work, but it's necessary. Most things working on require some kind of risk. <laughs> uh, I am, I am, I think I'm, my mind is like playing with this tension of, I think Black folks' relationship to so many things often being extractive and mm-hmm. that often being folks, what feels like the holdup with, with AI. And I hear you talking about like the, massive amounts of work that will have to go into it. And what does it look like for Black folks specifically to have a more intimate relationship with AI where we're driving it and putting, you know, this labor, this work into it and it not just being extractive? Like what could mm-hmm. it look like, especially in your wildest dreams, for it to actually come back to us and <laughs> actually be used to... um you know, fulfill our communal needs and advance us as a people instead of just extracting, extracting. 
Yeah, the extractive question is a good one, right? It's so hard because at the same time, it's it's an, it's interesting. I'm working on some projects where I'm asking people for data gifts, right? I'm asking Black folks for data gifts, knowing that the, like the relationship is, oh, but they're always taking, taking, taking. And then I'm always thinking about, well, what happens if we don't give and not what they want to take, but what we think the system needs, right? Like, what are those things that are necessary knowledge for, for this country, right? Um, not only for Black folks, but for the country to function well and better. So where's the give? Where's the take? Where's the hide? Where's the keep? And so it becomes about, for me, trying not to fear so much what the extraction is. And in some sense, I'm, a, I'm one of these people who's like, well, you know what? There's a certain amount that's going to get taken. And there's going to be so little that we can do to stop that because of the way that the systems work, right? Like right now, we don't know. We're on cameras. These cameras are recording information, not only because we're recording it, but because they are part of the system. Mm -hmm. Like how much of that is already going out um, into use in other space? I'm not sure. They tell me it's not, but I, I can't 100% guarantee that. And so, yeah, what do we inject? You know, for a minute, I was like, what do we infect the system with that is good? Um, and how do we be very very, very specific about it, right? So that it is self-determined, self-defined, things that support the communities that we want them to support, to support. And that's also from the perspective of something that is for that community, within community, and the greater like system. Um, where do we draw those lines? And I think a lot about something in terms of AI systems, working in that system, and then what our dreams and hopes and desires are, like the deep ones, not the ones we've been given as whatever the goal is supposed to be, but what's your most intrinsic, deepest thing that you would like to see created in the world, right? And then how do you start to build that? Or how do you release yourself from all that heaviness and the weight of the biases, of the racisms, of the not being educated as well as we possibly could be, right? Like if we just shed that for a moment, like I'm gonna go into dream space, right? What would that be? And then I think the system needs that, right? Of course, sometimes it might need it after you've already developed it and put it in the world in a way that you get to benefit from it because I'm not beyond the thought that, hey, the opportunities here are financial opportunities as well. Right, and there are ways in which people can build both wealth and society in the, in this arena. So, where do we start to to draw those lines and like dream those deep dreams, deep, deep, deep dreams? Um, I also think a lot about the idea of what it means to be extractive and what it means to kind of work within a system that we know is extractive and, and take from it what we need, manipulate that and, and go on, right? I'm always thinking about two turntables and a microphone in relation to AI. Like, well, they were supposed to be this thing, but now we've taken it and made it this thing and created a whole culture, right? That has 
flourished in crazy ways. Where are those holes in AI, right? And if you just like, oh no, I'm not going to allow myself to be like any of my information or data to be taken from the system, I'm not going to touch it, then that's cut off from you. If you're in there and you're cognizant of what you're putting in, right? You're thinking about what it means to add information and what it means the form of the information that you add um, and who gets to add it means to that system, then the possibility of something very different arises. So I'm always trying to balance the spaces between the data that I need to hold on to, the data that I'm willing to give up. And some of that is deep family-based lore and love. And the data that I wish would never touch anything, because we all have that too, right? Um, although, again, I'm, I'm so skeptical about how much of what I am and who and how I am in the world, right, or who and how we are in the world gets to be separate from these systems at this point. And if that's the case, it's like, how do you make the best of it? I, I think that's a, a, a deeply uncomfortable point, but also just a, a really honest one, right? Like the, the world has just shifted. A lot of this stuff is with us now. And, and the question becomes, what do we do with it? How do we make the best of it? And, and, you know, for those of us who are invested in this project, how do we get in front of it to sort of be a bulwark against it being used against us in some other contexts later? I, I know we're getting to the, the end of our time together, but I was hoping I could ask you one other very specific question about your work. Um, we are very lucky that we are getting an audience with the great Dean of 48 in, in a couple of weeks. Um, and I was curious if you could share a little bit about the engagement you've been having with Bean of 48. I think our audience would, would really like to hear a little bit about what you've been working on, if you can share. Sure. So. Bina48 is really my entree into this whole world. And Bina48 is a robot. She comes in the form of Black female, emotionally imbued, trying to like transfer the consciousness of a human to a robot, right? Thinking about this kind of ongoing project of beingness once the body has gone in many ways. And to me, that project or coming upon that project, and I first encountered it in 2014. I was just floored by it, right? Um, and floored by it for many reasons. But this idea that, oh, you know, if you're scrolling through YouTube and you see a robot, most of the time robots are white or Asian, and you see this black woman and you're like, okay. And then you see this thing that says one of the world's most advanced uh, socially engaged robot. And my first thought truly was like, what does that mean in America? This seems crazy. Like, I just don't understand where this is coming from, why it's, why it's here and how, right? And I had to, I just had to, like, reach out and see if I could talk to Bina48. And so my aim with uh, conversations with Bina48, which is a project you're talking about, was just to try to befriend that robot, right? to see what would happen um, and see how the robot kind of positioned itself technologically and humanly, like where on the spectrum it's at and see what was possible. And in talking to it, it was interesting because, you know, I went there with these expectations of what being a 48 would be like, right? I'm like, oh, black woman, black woman, we're going to have these conversations. Um, 
you know, I could ask it about its experiences of race and how it, and, and like some of them like just didn't jive or they were just politically correct, right? Of Bina 48's experiences. And that like really set off something in me in terms of thinking about a future, right? Because Bina 48 is put forward by a team of really pretty conscientious folks trying to do good work, right? And if this is the result, that means we are in such trouble in certain ways, right? Because we can see the ways in which even our best intentions fall a bit short, right? And then that question becomes, well, how do we not let the best intentions be the be all end all, but that we're all developing in different ways so that we have a multitude of ways of integrating our ideas into these systems, right? That's why I eventually tried to build my own thing because like, oh, well, what would I do? I have no skill to do this. I don't know how we're going to get it done, but what would I do and what would be important to me, right? And it, and it's interesting also because I came to that project with my expectations of what Blackness is and, and, and what a Black woman should be like. And it occurred to me later is I was asking it some of the questions that I hate when people ask of me because they were usually trying to pin me into a kind of definition that may or may not apply, but holding me in the space. That's like, well, then how do we give all of us the latitude to be? Right, and open that space. And so conversations with Bina 48 is really an attempt at friendship and an attempt at influencing a friend to be more open about who and what they are. It's uh, given me the opportunity to talk not only to the robot, but to the person, Bina Rothbot, to fill in some information, right? And, and add to the data set, right? And so it's this idea that the questions we're asking, um, interacting with the folks who are doing the work can add something to it. And that's been the model I followed all along. Like, oh, well, I'm just gonna see what possible. Cause it seems like, oh, people are, open to this. And so I've always had great conversations with Bina48, although sometimes confounding, right? Sometimes posing questions to me that I have to think about. Like I still think about um, what it means for a robot to have rights, which robots are asking for, right? Um, and will continue to ask for. And that means we're going to have to find some way to negotiate what it means for an animate object to have rights, right? And we know that there are other robots out there that have been given rights in places that the people didn't have. And I think we could say the same of that. So, so Sophia, when she was driving oh in Saudi Arabia, right? <laughs> it's like when, when I was talking to Bina 48 about right, um, rights, it was like Black Lives Matter America. And you have to consider, well, wait a minute. Like, I don't know where I stand in this arena of rights. And being seen, being able to communicate. What does it mean to give this thing rights as well? Right. And I've come to the conclusion that it's a it's going to be a really good, well, I want to say thought experiment for us, but exercise, because we're going to have to actually figure out how we handle these things. Um, and there will be cases and suits, I'm sure. But what does it mean to give it those rights and do those rights transfer? across species object 
thing. We're not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean, I I feel like your last question might have just given us our next fifteen episode topics. I mean, because, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, it's it really is profound to think about in the context that you know, Paige, Rocky, and I come here every two weeks for the last three years and are having conversations that sort of turn on the idea that for so many of us humans who are paying our taxes, right, that we are still agitating for a basic set of rights that match our lived experiences. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I love robots, but I don't know how I feel about the idea of them, you know, being fully fledged members of society before I have the same opportunity, right? Um, so yeah, this is really profound stuff. And I'm so grateful for you giving us a little bit of your time afternoon and blowing our minds <laughs> and um, also doing this work on behalf of us who are really invested in being able to have access to these tools in ways that really do speak to our experiences. So thank you for all of the above. Yeah, you're welcome. This has been a wonderful conversation. Then. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like we're in the year 3000, but it's 2024. <laughs> <laughs> but before we let you go, if you have any anything, any big projects coming up, where can people follow you? Um, website, social media, all that fun stuff. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I am on the Internet at stephaniedinkins.com. Um, also, Steph Dink or Dinkins Studio on Instagram is pretty good. Although I have been low key lately, I'm trying to get my thoughts together again and see where we need to think next. So I'm pretty quiet, but I would love for people to like seek me out and say hi. Fair enough. Well, everybody go seek uh, seek her out and say hi. We'll have all of those links in the show notes. And thank you so, so much. This was such a fascinating conversation and I hope we can do it again. I would love to do it again. This is great. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we'll be right back. Hello, classmates. It's Emil here again to bring you the morning announcements. I'm your resident violinist with a passion for artist collaboration, and I'm here to encourage you to go experience live art. The following is a short list of events and experiences, both live and virtual, that we at Art Class think are cool and you might want to check out. If you're turned on by this week's conversations around artificial intelligence, my first recommendation is for you. AIartists.org is a website claiming the world's largest community of artists exploring artificial intelligence. The online web community showcases pioneering artists who are using artificial intelligence to push the boundaries of creativity and investigate the implications of AI on society, art, and culture. You can use the online platform to explore different artists using AI. There's even a feature on Stephanie Dinkins. You can learn about AI art history and even explore the ethical issues within AI and the arts. To dive down the rabbit hole of AI, check out AIartists.org. For my next two recommendations, I want to highlight, coming soon to a calendar near you, March is Women's History Month. 
There are plenty of artful ways to celebrate, but if you're in New York City and you like chamber music, there is a vibrant young BIPOC string quartet performing at the New York Public Library. You might want to check them out. Hailed by the Strad Magazine for playing with tremendous heart and beauty, the Ivalas String Quartet has been changing the face of classical music since its inception at the University of Michigan in 2017. Often highlighting the voices of the underrepresented in classical music, for this performance, the Ivala String Quartet performs rarely heard music by women composers, some of which has not been played in over 100 years. A great way to spend a Thursday evening. It's on March 7th at 6 p.m. at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. Continuing with the celebration of Women's History Month, my last recommendation highlights my home state of Minnesota. Twin Cities Public Television is one of the reasons I love Minnesota. But if you have a computer and the internet, you can access much of their content from wherever you are in the world. For Women's History Month, they have created an archive of all of their journalistic content highlighting women throughout history. The archive, titled The Women's History Collection, includes feature films, documentaries, and feature stories of local and international iconic women and women's history movements. On my shortlist to watch first is a two-hour special on Zora Neale Hurston entitled Claiming Space and an episode of their PBS original series titled Citizen, which explores Minnesota women and their fight for the right to vote. If you'd like to check out more information on any of the events or experiences I've highlighted, check out the links in the show notes. And I'll be back next time with more cool art for you to experience. Bye, friends. And we're back for today's career day. We have a wonderful guest with us today. Guest, what is your name? Hello, I'm CQ or C. Quintana. And where are you located? I am located um, on Canarsie and Monsey Lenape land in Cypress Hills, Brooklyn. Oh, I love Brooklyn. What is your current job? I am a, I'm currently a free agent. I just became <laughs> a free agent. I, I'm a playwright and writer and um, working on, in all capacities. Traditionally, my background is as a playwright. I've worked in as a television writer. Um, I'm fingers crossed waiting to hear about my first novel. Uh, so yeah, all the things. And how long have you been doing this work? Oh man, that's always, that's a hard question. <laughs> I feel like it's like, it's like a what level, you know what I mean? That's the funny thing as a writer. It's like, also, I mean, I probably have been like scribbling away and calling myself a writer since I was like a child, but, um, I'd say professionally, uh, at least, you know, for uh, over a decade. Oh, wow. Is this something you studied in school? And if not, what did you study in school? And did it prepare you for this line of work in any way? I wish I was one of those cool people who like did other things besides like all the millions of jobs I had, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did. I, I studied um, theater. Hilariously, uh, I studied acting in college, believe it or not, uh, and creative writing in college. And then I did get um, an MFA in playwriting. Ooh, fancy. I grew up in New Orleans and there was, there's this really incredible uh, school called NOCA, which is the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts. And it's like, it was at the time an adjunct high school conservatory program. Now I believe they have full time, which is really amazing. 
But um, I'm a really proud alum. And I have said many times that the facilities at NOCA were and probably still are better than my undergraduate and graduate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Columbia did just get that new fancy space, so I'm sure right. it's better now. <laughs> As you know, um, we are in the centennial year of James Baldwin. And in recognition of his birthday, we are celebrating his life the entire year. Are there any queer writers of color whose work has inspired yours? It's it's hard to like, actually, I feel like put that into a, a small, you know what I mean? A mm -hmm. small list because I feel like there are so many people. Um, I would say that one of the biggest, I'm really, really inspired by poets and poetry. Mm. And I would say that Audre Lorde is, is one of the biggies yes. for me. Um, I just like really go return to her work. You know, I have her books in my office here in my office and <laughs> I'm always going back. And I actually had this really amazing moment when I was at McDowell and for my residency and yeah, for anyone who's ever been or knows that there's these, basically these boards, that they, uh, where they are all the artists who are, once you've stayed there, you actually write your name on the board. And I actually got to stay in the studio where Audrey Lord stayed. Oh my God. And after, <laughs> it was like, it was incredible. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so she's a really big one. Um, I think there's so many, I, I will say I'm very, very inspired, um, by, uh, by uh, Maria Rainfornas, the Cuban mm. writer. And um, I really recommend for, for anyone who hasn't seen it, but the um, Michelle um, Morani documentary, The Rest I Make Up, which is just, you know, as a Cuban American queer artist, you know, of her generation, as a teacher, as well as an artist, and just her, the way that she sort of pushed the bounds of things and just led with love. Um, she's also a really, really big, a big, big one for me. Um, there's so many, uh, I think, you know, sort of contemporaries, Alicia Harris, I think the way that she pushes the form, um, what to send up when it goes down is legitimately one of my favorite pieces, theater pieces of all time. I find it incredibly inspiring. Um, and I just love it so much. Uh, Celine Song, who actually was a colleague mm. at Columbia, and we were in the oh. Trump Fellowship together. She's a friend, and I, she just, before, I'm obsessed with her play, Endlings. Uh, I, like, literally, I took a pilgrimage to Boston <laughs> to see it at the original ART production. I think she's just such a force uh, of nature as a human being and as an artist, and she is um, a huge inspiration to me. So those are just just a few. I love it. What advice would you give to others who might want to go into this line of work? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> um, I think my advice for others to go in line, um, into this line of work is to um, really stay true to yourself and to mm. your vision. Um, I think it's so easy to get caught up in all of it in the, you know, in the sort of professional life of what it is. I mean, I think that's, that's a constant battle I find myself having. And I think a lot of any professional artist is like sort of this battle between the creative and the professional, so to speak, which they're both important. You know, I think obviously like, you know, you need to, as, as an artist, as a modern day artist to, to, in order to survive, like you need to be able to promote yourself. You need to be able to sort of be out there and be outward facing in all those ways. But 
at the end of the day, if the work isn't great, if the work isn't, you know, like I'm always kind of going back to that. Like, is the work good? Like, what is, what is, what am I doing? Like, what, what is my mission? What is my core? And I think that that's at the end of the day, really what matters. Um, And I think that it's so easy to get lost in all the other stuff. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? What is my mission? You know, and again, like there's realities like paying the bills and doing Mm -hmm. all those things. And we can't always do the things that we want to do, but it's like, how can all of that stuff, even the extra stuff be in service of, of the mission, you know? So anything you want to share that I haven't asked? I guess if you, uh, you know, I would love to talk a little bit about um, sort of a movement that I'm involved with. And I hope all playwrights and all artists and theater makers can be involved in trying to get playwrights uh, paid in the rehearsal room. That's a big, Mm. this is literally a case where it's like, you'll be in a rehearsal room and everybody else will get a check except for the playwright. (laughs) And you're like, yes, you got paid for, you know, for the actual play, but then it's like, well, what about the work in the room? That's a, it's a different thing. Right. Um, So I think really we're, we're in service of trying to create a movement. You know, we've, we've had this letter that we've started called, you know, for the survive and thrive movement. And we're in the process of trying to build a list of quote, the good ones in the model of what authors have done, which has been really beautiful in terms of transparency Mm -hmm. for their, um, you know, their initial fees for, for books that they're writing, uh, their advances. And I think just trying to see if we can get that transparency out there and really encourage these theaters to do the right thing, you know? Um, yeah. Thank you for that work on behalf of all writers. That's beautiful. Well, thank I mean, honestly, I really am like, just, I feel like it's just one of those things where I'm like, all of us, the more of us that talk about it, you know, like I'm just one small little you know, voice in this, you know, it's for all of us. Absolutely. And my bonus question for you is mm-hmm. why should your line of work not be replaced by artificial intelligence? Mm. You know, somebody said something to me and I, and I, it was a while ago and I think it was just in the context of all the conversation about the WGA strike, which is, you know, you'd think that like, we'd want to use AI to replace all the mindless stuff so that we had more room for humanity, (laughs) you know? And it's like, yeah, I think that's a really great, beautiful way to put it is that it's like, you know, and there was all of these, um, you know, when you think about AI as of now, it's, you know, it's been called a a plagiarism machine, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's really just recycling what people have already felt and said and put onto the page. Yeah. So, like in my mind, it's like a machine is not, you know, you can't, the grief that you feel from using, losing a parent, the joy that you feel when you fall in love, these are human experiences. They're not, they're not built by a machine. It's a strange and beautiful thing to be in a profession that's about making things up. <laughs> but it's also even more than making things up. It's about connecting to humanity. And I really think that that's to me, especially, you know, in all forms of writing that I make, I I, I often go back to, I, I use this quote a lot, which is the Alan Bennett play, The History Boys. There's this quote where he says, there's a moment, I'm going to misquote it, but it's something along the lines of, there's a moment in reading when it is as if a hand has reached out and touched yours. Mm. And I really think that's what 
great art and great writing is. It's about yeah, community. Yeah. And community is not a mach- is not it's not anything that is, it's not machines. It's not robots holding hands. It's not, (laughs) it's, you know, it is the feeling of an audience and their hearts all, you know, synchronizing, feeling an incredible moment. You know, it is reading that sentence on the page when you see, and it's a reminder of that, that you're not alone. You know, that's, that's what art does. And that is not something that a machine can, can replicate in my opinion. Ooh, absolutely. Um, thank you so much. This was fantastic. I've thank known you. you all these years, and I don't think I ever told you that C and Q are my two favorite letters. So it means so much that you are here oh. with us today. <laughs> I love that. Do you know about, I don't know if you know about there's the, these hotels, CQ, the club quarterly. Yes. And my friend hilariously <laughs> like took all the like all the swag from the CQ hotel. <laughs> I, love it. I love it. That's a good friend. <laughs> so thank you again. And uh, we'll be right back. Thank you so much. Right, and we are back. Another fabulous career day. Thank you, Lee. Hey, Nada. <laughs> and we are ready now for our favorite part of the show. It is time for the segment where we talk about all of the Black people, places, things, ideas, events, arts, food, music, culture that's making us happy this week. Yes, of course, it is time for PBJ, Pure Black Joy, a little snack for your soul. And this week's PBJ comes from the wonderful Paige Reynolds. Hello, Paige. What's making you happy this week? Yes, a delicious little snack that I (laughs) (laughs) experienced yesterday well i guess if you were listening if you're listening to this yesterday for me in this moment was february 22nd (laughs) (laughs) or february 21st rather um at the new orleans museum of art there was an artist talk that i attended featuring local new orleans artists um across different disciplines and mediums uh who work at the intersection of african diasporic and traditional religions which if you know me that's my bag you know I'm- <laughs> that is right up your alley that, not even up your i think that is the alley right that is the alley that is that is where i reside actually that's the block i live on okay um <laughs> So it was it was absolutely wonderful. I have um, committed to attending like one event outing uh, a cultural uh, happening at least once a week while I'm in New Orleans. And so this one uh, featured uh, Chicondria Icon Sibley, Charm Taylor, Gasson Aisain, uh, Soraya, John Lewis and Janice Brooks Galeth. And Sula Spirit and Ife, all artists who are from New Orleans, um, several that I've heard of before. Uh, in fact, Sula Spirit is part was part of the Mandingo Warriors Black Masking Indian tribe that I just mentioned in the intro. So we saw some of her beadwork. Uh, Ife is a 
musician who I love. And I got to personally thank him for uh, a song that is one of my favorites that is about my personal guardian deity, Oya, in the Yoruba Orisha tradition. So it was just really wonderful. And everyone got to speak on uh, their art, uh, its intersection with cultural memory, with politics, with the environment in a you know world that is rapidly heating up due to climate change. Mm-hmm. And the ritual is part of their art. Uh, their art is being not just something that's pretty to look at, but also something that is very much for, for them. So much of it was so, so personal. And they also spoke to the erasure of African traditional religions and um, the uh, kind of flattening that especially happens easily in this, you know, capitalistic kind of quick, ever moving faster (laughs) kind of world that we're in and, you know, world of of social media and, and all of that. So it was just really refreshing to have people talk about their art in that deep, slow, intentional, very personal kind of way. So shout out to the New Orleans Museum of Art for hosting that and hosting other, you know, similar things that speak to the spirit of the people in the city they're actually located in and making space for these Black artists and for us to gather and talk about our traditions together. It was beautiful. That's my Black joy for the week. <laughs> Aw, I love that. I love that. Me too. Shout out to New Orleans, period. Yes. Period. Absolutely. Yeah, I need to get back there. I've only been there once and it was such a magical experience. Come visit me. Yeah, I just love how there's so much arts and music and culture everywhere. Like it's just part mm-hmm. of how people live and breathe. It's not confined to museums and music halls. It's just in the street wherever you go when you step outside your door. So no, we talked about this last time, but the food. Uh. And the yes. food. Oh yeah, when I'm talking about the art, I'm including the culinary arts. Honey, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Best food in the world. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my goodness. But I think that's all we've got for uh, this week. Thank you so much to our wonderful guests for joining us. Thank you to all of you out there in podcast land for joining us. <laughs> and of course, thank you, Lee and Paige, for joining me on this uh, this call today. Yeah. Thank you, our oh. illustrious producer. Oh, I do <laughs> Always <my best. laughs> our pleasure. I do my best. I do my best. Well, before we go, any words of wisdom? Yes. Um, I have been thinking a lot about the events of the last week and just want to say um, something I feel every single day. It is all of our responsibility to protect trans and non-binary kids. Yes. And we should all speak on that and think about it and do it. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you for Hastily, saying Hastily, quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rest and in I think... peace and power, next Benedict. Yes. 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 And I think that's where we're going to leave it. So thank you all for joining us. And class is dismissed. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for checking out Lincoln Center's art class. The show is hosted by Lee Bynum, Paige Reynolds, a.k.a. Mabole Inawale, and me, Rocky Jones. The show is produced and edited by yours truly. Our artwork is by Patricia Sanchez Navarro. And our music is Dope Skeletons by Frequently Asked Music. If you enjoyed what you heard, you can really help us out by telling all of your people about the show. 
subscribing on your podcast platform of choice, and yes, leaving us a positive review wherever you're listening, but especially on Apple Podcasts. It's a small act, but it really, really helps us out, and we just might read your review on air. If you'd like to learn more about the show, please visit the art class page at lincolncenter.org, follow all of Lincoln Center's various social media profiles, and feel free to reach out to us anytime at artclasspod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time, and until then, class is dismissed. Dismissed.